This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. For every podcast I put out, I also publish a blog post at thefelderreport.com with links, charts, reports, and other resources related to the conversation. So if you haven't done so already, go to thefelderreport.com and see what you've been missing. My guest for this episode is Jim Stack. Now, Jim has been assiduously studying markets in an effort to develop and hone a full cycle investment discipline since he was first introduced to stock market risk back in the 1973-74 bear market. That experience instilled in him an infectious enthusiasm for investment research that still drives him today. It also set him on a journey that would eventually see him founding InvestTech, one of the most successful investment newsletters in the industry, and later Stack Financial Management, an SEC-registered advisory firm with billions under management. In this episode, Jim shares some of the key stories that shaped him as an investor and the lessons learned along the way. He also discusses how he developed some of the major indicators that drive his investment process and how they currently influence his approach to the market. So please enjoy my conversation with Jim Stack. Ever wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Jim, welcome to the show. It's great to be talking to you, Jess. Well, we're sitting here in your gorgeous new office in Whitefish. And the first thing that, you know, I, I got to ask you is, how did you end up here in Whitefish, a town of less than 10,000 people in northern Montana? Well, it's it's funny because I grew up in Montana. And, and Montana has always been a very, very fun place to live if you could get into the mountains and recreate. And I learned to ski here, I didn't grow up here in Whitefish. I grew up on the east side, but I learned to ski here at Big Mountain at the time when I was five years old. And all they had was a rope toe and a T-bar. And my gosh, I think they have 30 lifts today. Yeah. Um, but it, it was one of those things where you got out, you got into the backcountry, you learned to fish. Um, you had bear encounters before people feared bears and you just learned how to deal with it. Um, at the same time, when I graduated from college out of my, my undergraduate degrees in Montana State, anyone who wanted a good paying job had to leave Montana because right. there were, there were no good, really good paying jobs unless you went to work for a, for example, for an oil refinery or something. So I went to work with IBM in Boulder, Colorado in research and development. And from there back to here was kind of a convoluted, series of circumstances that just worked out. I, I loved being at IBM. I loved the company back in the 1970s. Uh, it was the, the bluest of blue chips. And uh, my indoctrination in the market came with while I was at IBM in 73, 74, which I'm sure we can talk about. Yeah. <laughs> it was very painful. And I, I decided after that that the, the stock market was not a fair game because I'd gotten burned and I was – you know, supposedly very, very bright. So by the, the late seventies, um, you know, I got to know some of the people out there who were the top analysts nationally and making very, very good names from themselves. And I said, you know, I wonder if I'd start a financial research firm and if I could do it, where would I want to start it? And it was, my mind immediately went back to whitefish. Yeah. And that's what led to that great big leap of faith and, 
and trial and tribulation that that you know I I knew I I knew I had a chance of making it and if I didn't then I'd have to pull the plug in two or three years and then go back to engineering at one of the major firms nationally. Yeah, well it's it's neat that you decided to start the firm here. I mean I I, I can confirm independently firsthand that this is a special place i spent the last couple of days going through glacier park and we did see a grizzly bear on you know, right, right next to the road <laughs> they're surprisingly more common than you think <laughs> yeah you know and, and uh, we saw some bighorn sheep right up there at the top wow. of logan pass and and um, i went fly fishing yesterday it's it can't be very hard to recruit people <laughs> to come live in in whitefish it just seems like a, a, a wonderful quality of life here yeah generally the people who come here are making a decision for the quality of life. Yeah. And, and the advantage today is you are seeing more firms like ours that moved back here or started here um, on an entrepreneurial basis and have found a footing and a very stable footing and can offer very, very good paying jobs here yeah. you know, outside the service and tourism industry. Yeah, it's one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I think it's a theme among people that I've been speaking to since I started my, my road trip is that they found a wonderful place to live and they've realized, you know what, I can live anywhere I want to be. So whether that's Vail, Colorado or Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Sun Valley, uh, and now yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit different and, and a lot easier today than it was when I first made <laughs> no the move right. back in the early eighties. And, and when we first built the offices on, on Whitefish Lake at the time in 1986 yeah. and, and 87, I remember all of our data feed had to come in through a 12 foot satellite dish that was on the top of the house. Wow. And whenever it would snow, which is quite often in the winter, you had to get up there with a, a broom, push broom with a 20 foot extension handle to clear the snow off the dish on top of the wow. house so it uh you know it one winter the snow was so deep that you just walk down the roof and step right off onto the snowbank so yeah. it became yeah. easier that winter to keep the dish clear but yeah. once once the uh internet came in uh and you started having um you know even over the phone lines by modem you started having more communication it made it a lot easier than than trying to do it by by satellite transmission right Right. Well, I want to go back to that, your time at IBM, because I know you have a background in engineering and, uh, and worked for IBM in a previous lifetime. What was it like to be on the cutting edge of technology, really at the dawn of the computer age? Well, it, it was fun. This was before any of the PCs. Uh, the first PCs didn't come out until uh, the time that we were actually starting the company in the early 1980s. In fact, we kind of grew up grew the company on the first PC, and then there was the AT, more advanced. And, man, those floppy drives, each drive, was when, when they invented the new one, it could hold so much more da data. I could remember when over 100,000, you know, bytes, it was like, wow, that's huge. Today, right. that, you know, that would be a, a fraction of a microchip on, on a memory stick. Right. Um, but... Uh, Development with IBM was fun, and I traveled around the country. I was a project manager leading a team in development, and um, it was challenging, but it just didn't have that that quality of life. I wanted to mm -hmm. be really in the heart of the mountains. I wanted to be 
back in a place like Whitefish and starting a financial research firm was the opportunity to, to, to do it. And I looked at other people who were doing it, most more notably Marty Zweig, mm-hmm. um, of the Zweig forecast. And of course, he's passed yeah. away now. And, and Norm Fosbeck with Stock Market Logic, one of the stalwarts of, of the, the analytical phenomenon. Basically taking more of an engineering approach, taking it to the stock market and say, okay, instead of just making blind forecasts, are there tools out there that can work and, and those that can't? And that's when I, I really got really enamored with analysis in the market because I could do my own programming. And, uh, we did a lot of our own development. It was hard getting data at that time. Um, the way we learned about when we started the firm uh, in Vestac in the early 80s, the, the way we learned the most, we would go down to the university libraries. There's one in Bozeman, one in Missoula. And, and we would hire graduate stu- students and go down in the basements, in the archives, in microfish, microfilm, and, and actual periodicals. And we had taken a, a wall chart and said, I want to learn about the tough times. I want to go back and learn about that 73, 74 bear market where I got my clock cleaned as a bright young engineer, very cocky young engineer, I, I admit. Uh, and it was very humbling and humiliating and, and very valuable. Mm-hmm. It taught uh, a respect for risk. But then there was also the 68, 69 bear market, what is known as the go-go fund era. Right. Uh, the washout of Gerald Sy and all the funds uh, you know, there's a lot of parallels made between him and some of the fund managers today, the speculative fund managers, mm-hmm. and and the 66 bear market, and all the way back to 1929, uh, the 29 to 32 uh, phenomenon that led into the Great Depression. What what caused it? What what triggered it? What were the warning flags ahead of time? What was it like at the top? We would actually get into the magazines. That's what we did in the libraries. We would have the research students go back and photocopy or or make an image of the microfilm of any financial articles out of those magazines. You know, uh, Business yeah. Week went back and U.S. News went back and there were some other archives that, that went back that, that don't even exist today. But by making our own physical library of those major bear markets – you know, we came back with files and files full of these articles. So then once we got back, then we could go back and live that bear market as the average person on the street would live it. Right. Read what they're reading, see the assurances, very most often false assurances that we were not going into a recession and that it was just a correction, not a bear market. And and watch and overlay this with some of the data that we had compiled. We'd compiled a lot of the technical data back into the early 1900s for the Dow and and New York Stock Exchange, and um, and we also had compiled monetary data from the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. going all the way back. So we could look at interest rates, look at the market, look at breadth, look at leadership, uh, and and say, okay, were there warning flags? Well, let's try running analysis on this. Let's look at new highs and new lows, which the data only goes back to the early 1960s. But still, understanding how that data unfolds in a frothy topping market is invaluable. 
there's no holy grail on Wall Street. That uh, you learn that very early in in analytics, or or if you're a market analyst or a market technician, uh, there's no single indicator that's going to be right all the time. It is a weight of the evidence. And there are certain tools that are far more reliable than others. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. The one thing I, I learned very quickly in taking all my, you know, knowledge from IBM research and development and trying to apply it to the market. The thing I learned very quickly is that what's really valuable is learning what not to pay attention to. And that's probably 80%. Of, yeah. of the stuff out there. That's what you see in the headlines. It's what you're feeling, you know, emotionally and, and a lot of the technical data, supposedly technical data. Um, you know, we don't even look at. I'm not a strong point and figure advocate of Fibonacci and, and stuff. I, I, you know, I've looked at it. We've analyzed it and I've, when I get done, I go, okay, I'm going to put that on. I'm not going to pay attention <laughs> right. to that because I don't know how to, accurately i haven't figured out a way that to make that dependable in terms of of being a warning flag well the most that's very helpful to me the most successful technical analysts that i've found uh subscribe to the kiss school would you know, keep Absolutely. it simple stupid you know? the, <laughs> the more complicated it gets the harder you know the, the the less value that it has but it's also helpful for me to hear you talk about headlines and going back and looking at news articles because that's something that you do in the invest tech product mm-hmm. is intersperse the headlines um you know into into the, the mm-hmm. with the indicators and things and as my friend um peter atwater likes to say media reflects mood and so media can be a very good sentiment indicator is that really how you uh, look the at media it? media headlines are are a perfect contrary you know indicator yeah. uh, you will it uh, you know, markets peak when expectations are highest. That is not just investor expectations, but also consumer expectations. When it seems like it's the rosiest economic outlook, everything's heading in the right direction, there's not a cloud in the sky, that's when you've got to start looking behind you for those storm clouds. Because that is when typically during those periods of low volatility, that precedes the warning flags that start coming and, and the, the mar- bull markets peak in, in a sea of widespread euphoria and optimism. Right. And very often at, at times, if things are, are driving, if the Fed's accommodative, you will also see bubble conditions. You'll see valuations that are out of touch with what should be the norm. And that's when you end up with a higher degree of risk because, you know, if valuations are detached that much, if the, you're really in bubble territory, um, then you've got the extreme downside risk, like we saw in housing in 2005, and we saw in the tech stocks in in the late 90s. Yeah. Uh, and th- those are those are the periods that that where I think managing risk uh, is viewed as very passe. I mean, why would you yeah. need to manage risk if there's not a cloud in the sky? And yet that is when it is most important. Right. And that just leads me right into you mentioned that it was that 7374 bear market that really kind of hit you upside the head and, and made you appreciate risk and really inspired you to look at the markets on a deeper level and, and really begin your study of markets. Uh, you started Investec in 79, I believe. Yeah. Um, really 1980 is when I left IBM and okay. started Investec um, and, and started as a small newsletter. 
uh, basically, I just love doing research. Yeah. And started as a newsletter, and there were some people in the industry that gave me a good foot up. Uh, the endorsements, uh, some of them people don't even remember anymore. Stan Weinstein, there was Bob Gross. He ended up, a couple people so ended up selling their financial newsletters to us over the years. Chuck right. Allman. Uh, who was very, who was very well respected and, and started, uh, GSO fund and stuff. He sold us, uh, his newsletter when he retired from it. Um, you know, Stan Weinstein and, and Marty Zweig were very active at that time. Marty, what I, what I appreciate about Marty Zweig for, for those of you who are old enough or, or analysts who have gone back and read about Marty Zweig, he used a unique approach that made sense to me and it was a combination of technical analysis and monetary analysis you know everyone right. i think a lot of people have learned you know the that the old adage you know don't never fight the fed that came from marty right and marty's wife had started developing monetary indicators uh at that time and uh, that tracked interest rates tracked fed liquidity and so we took a natural inclination to go back and look at that same thing. And, and the irony, we stayed, uh, we stayed good friends. We became friends over the years. We spoke at conferences together, but, uh, he was, he was my senior and he was also my mentor in some long distance. Uh, and yet in 1998 at the, this was at the height of the tech bubble. He was, uh, managing and owning, I was Avatar Associates large money manager in New York. And he called me up and he said, Jim, we're having trouble selling managing risk. Mm. And he said, I want you to come back and do a presentation to my team on what you're doing in selling uh, managing risk, the importance of managing risk. So I, I went back and did a presentation to, to Marty's key, you know, technical team at the time. Uh, I think, uh, Lizanne Saunders, who's the chief market technician with, uh, with Schwab, I think was there at the time too. Yeah. So, but, um, the late nineties was, was a struggle for defensive safety first money managers because one thing that, that happened at the time, and this is very characteristic looking back at historical bubbles is, is if you end up with a valuation bubble, a couple things. Number one, it's never identified with certainty until aftermath and it deflates. Yeah, right. Secondly, those inside the bubble, uh, you know, it's invisible to them. Right. And don't try to get in an argument because you're going to lose because the market's going to keep going higher and you're, and you're wrong until it unwinds. So, uh, you know, the, the difference between, uh, just a highly overvalued market and, and a bubble is a subtle one that is really only defined in the aftermath, looking back and saying, you know, how far it fell afterwards. Of course, when the NASDAQ fell over 80%, yeah. you know, as a result of the tech wash out of the late 90s, yep, anyone who looks back and says, yep, it was a tech bubble. What they tend to forget is that the S&P also lost 48%. Right. That was a big bear market for if you weren't prepared and if you weren't defensive for it. Yeah. Well, clearly you have a focus on risk management. And in this day and age of, I, I call it the era of passive investing, mm -hmm. right? uh, your methodology seems like a deeply contrarian thing. Like, like you said, 
uh, managing risk right now is not a popular thing. It's it's a difficult sales pitch <laughs> for for people who right. thought yeah, I, you know I, mm-hmm. I just put my money all my money in the stock market and S P five hundred and I don't have and I well, worry or about just it. chase or just chase the latest hot investment. You know, yeah. and and you see this in in the trading out there. You see it in the speculation. You all of a sudden you'll end up with a, a day when all the when the blue chip indexes are down and the Nasdaq's up one and a half percent. It's like you know everyone's stampeding into the same stocks. It it, it makes me more nervous about today because yeah. we do have we're in the ninety fifth plus percentile in almost any in terms of valuation. In almost any way you look at this market, yeah. this is a very expensive market. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we've seen the high. I don't necessarily think we have. Uh, but it does mean that if you're going to invest, you need to be careful. Uh, and that means be selective. Don't go after the maximum returns. And that's a message that doesn't sell today. Uh, we're doing very, very well. We just crossed 1.6 billion on our money management side, mm-hmm. the, the SFM or stack financial management that we incorporated in 1994. Um, the research side on the invest tech side, we basically are focusing on the facts, just the facts. Yeah. And what are they telling us about this market? Right. And, and, uh, that's the interesting part. That's what we did in the late nineties to get through the tech bubble. Uh, we were too defensive too early. Uh, we were recommending too high of cash, uh, because we didn't know how to play in the bubble. And, and that's when we did a lot of our historical research. Yeah. <laughs> we bought all, you know, I, we bought all the, all the books, Manias, Panics, Crashes, and, and the Great Crash, and, and the, 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 the Go Go Fund era. And we learned about all of these past peak areas, the psychology, yeah. what carried it. And, and it really tied in with our technical analysis at the time in really identifying that the, the, the warning flags very often are the same in terms of psychology, in terms of breadth, in terms of leadership. And, and they're not always all present, but most of them are. And what you have to do is try to watch for them and train yourself to be disciplined to avoid the emotions and, and stay with you know, what, what your technical gut is telling you. Yeah. And, and so I want to dig into some of these indicators specifically. But first of all, before we get into any of the specific indicators themselves, where did you find a lot of these things and, and how did you test them? I guess I'm most curious to know how do you um, separate the valuable ones from the ones you ignore and how do you synth- synthesize the indicators into an overall uh, investment framework. Well, there's there's several ways you can look at indicators, and and you'll see a lot of these things tossed out. Like uh, as I said, you'll see point and figure, you'll see Fibonacci series or Elliott wave, and you'll see you know volume analysis and stuff. I, ironically, one of the better technicians back in the early 1980s was Joe Granville, who ended up you know. Uh, basically failing miserable mm-hmm. miserably in in the bull market of 1982 because we took went out, we took off in what would turn out to be the greatest bull market in decades mm-hmm. and he stayed bearish yeah and part of the reason he did that is is he did not pay attention to you know his own tools his mm-hmm. on balance volume his net field trend and stuff but we we looked at those tools and we said okay what how is this working right how's it working wrong and how do we want to look at it so, um, 
And and one of the books that we really liked at the time was Stock Market Logic. You can still buy it out there on Amazon in reprint. It's like in its thirty fourth reprint from from uh, uh, Norm Fosbeck. Uh, but uh, it basically had has this has you know all these chapters, and each one looks at different little different tools. Mm-hmm. You know, short sales. Uh, you know, advanced decline ratio and stuff. And and so we would look at those and we say, okay, what do we want to get in and analyze? And let's go back and look at what these different tools were saying if we get the data and run them through the major peaks. In other words, I didn't want to go back and study the bull markets. Mm-hmm. It's easy to invest in the bull market. Right. I wanted to study the bear markets and particularly the market topping process before the bear market, how would you know, how could you determine that you should be building a more defensive cash reserve? And, and something I, I, I learned, um, from my expert, from my experience in 73, 74, and, and as we ran the research firm in 1980 forward, because we have over 40 years with Investec research, you know, I, I learned never get frantic about the market. Never get panicked, you know, that you're, that you're being left behind. Mm-hmm. Profit opportunities always come around again. Right. And, and what you want to do is number one, you know, make sure that you have the cash available when you get to those best buying opportunities of a decade, which we certainly had in March of 2009 at the depths of the Great Recession. Um, but the other thing is make sure that you don't lose your hard-earned capital. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, um, you know, the, I think one of, one of the fallacies today is investors think, well, you can't time the markets just, so just stay invested all the time, no matter what. That, that, you know, if, if I were to give advice to someone in their twenties and thirties, it would be, that's a good principle. Use dollar cost averaging, put so much aside every month or every quarter, put it into a good five-star rated fund, mm-hmm. stick only with five-star funds from Morningstar, and just put it aside and don't look at it. If you look at it, if yeah. you read the headlines, you are going to panic at the wrong time because you'll panic at the lows and uh, and you'll be buying at the highs. So dollar cost averaging works mm-hmm. if you're in your 20s and 30s. Right. Once you have a an established portfolio that's six figures or even seven figures, and then those incremental contributions every year, your dollar cost averaging that you're putting in, are very small compared to the size of the portfolio. Right. That's when if you ride through big bear markets that can lose 50 or, or more percent of your portfolio, they hurt. Yeah. Because if you lose 50% of your portfolio, it takes a 100% gain to get back to even. Right. And so I, you know, basically our research services in Vestac are, appeal more to investors who are more seasoned, uh, that have over 20 years experience. Uh, I think 80% of our subscribers, we did a, a broad survey and we got a phenomenal response last year. 80% of our subscribers have, uh, I believe that statistic has, have over 20 years experience in the market mm-hmm. and, and they understand the importance of managing risk once you have an established portfolio. Um, and, and I'm not against, I, I, what we do is not market timing. 
It's basically saying, you know, mm. here we are. You know, if you if you ignore the the pandemic panic last year, and you go back to from from March of two thousand nine, the last really major market low, um, you know, would you have the same investment strategy today in this frothy, extremely overvalued market as you would back in? March and April 2009, when valuations were at their rock bottom, and you had what we labeled in in our March newsletter was the potential buying opportunity of a lifetime. And the answer is no. You don't have to have the same investment strategy through high-risk markets as you would in low-risk markets. This is a high-risk market. Cash management and risk management are more important today than they were you know, in 2009 or even three years ago. Yeah. And I think the truth of it is investors might call themselves passive buy and hold, but history has proven that they're all market timers. They just time very poorly. (laughs) It's like Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the nose. Exactly. And investors today are, I think a lot of the new investors, they are buy and hold and they are buy the dip. Yeah. And until and we get that's really punched why, in the nose. Well, and, until we go into the next major bear market and all yeah. of a sudden they're down over 20%, and that would probably be the early stages of, of the bear market. And every dip that they've bought just ends up going worse. And, and that's when, you know, you know, the headlines start getting worse. Mm-hmm. And the headlines are always the worst at the market bottoms. Right. And that's something investors do not realize. I remember the headlines that appeared in the 73, 74. In mm-hmm. fact, that was one, one era that we did a lot of our archival research in the libraries because I wanted to see what I could have done differently. Yeah. And by the time you got to the end of 1974, now keep in mind, we'd been in a two-year bear market. And in October of that year, they finally came out and announced that we were in a recession and back to the starting point by over 12 months. Right. In other words, we are within, we're, we're at the bottoming process of the biggest bear market since the 1930s. And it's not identified that we're going into a recession until the end of the bear market. And then the headlines appear. Now even nations are in danger of default. And one after, it's one, a favorite slide I like to put up at conferences and say, you know, you think you're a buy and hold? You know, let's suppose you've lost 50% of your portfolio in the bluest of blue chips. And if you're in small caps, you've lost far more than that. And then you're seeing these headlines. And I put up those headlines that appeared in October, November of 19. 1974 and the look on their faces was wow yeah i never thought about that yeah most most investors and this happens particularly with with you know with people who have larger portfolios and are losing money they can't afford to lose mm-hmm. the the decision to step out near a market bottom is not an emotional one it is the most objective decision of their lifetime because mm-hmm. they've lost more than they could afford to. In, in bigger bear markets, they may have lost half, even in the blue chips. And then they see these headlines that the worst is yet to come. Yep. And they say, I can't afford to lose more than I've already lost. Right. Same thing happened in, in 2009. And, and the market peaked in October of 2007. Right. Now, keep in mind in this last cyclical peak, and in, in you know this was 
the, the housing bubble peak. Housing peaked in 2005, but by 2007, everyone was convinced housing was just going to come down, soft landing, no problem. Uh, the market peaked, the stock market peaked in October of 2007, and yet several months <clears> earlier, <throat> we came out with an issue in Vestec and said, you know, bear market warning flags. And basically, we went to a high cash position and, you know, and, and the reason is we were seeing warning flags in breadth and leadership, and we did not like what we were seeing on the monetary side. We basically had cleaned out all financials out of our portfolio, mm-hmm. um, you know, our, our, the Investec recommended portfolio at the time. And, but as we went into that, that bear market that lasted from October 07 through March of 2009, there was 18-month bear market. The bad headlines didn't appear until the fourth quarter of yeah. 2008. Yeah. By then, you know, once again, it wasn't identified until a recession, until the fourth quarter of 2008. Starting date was backdated back to, you know, the fourth quarter of 2007, exactly like 1973, right. 74. Yeah. I'm going, wow, right. history does repeat itself. Yeah. And then the headlines started getting far worse. And the headlines, again, it's another set of those headlines that I love to put up in, in, you know, in a presentation when we, when I go and speak at a conference, those headlines in the first quarter of 2009, when, yeah. uh, major indexes <clears throat> are off, the Dow was off 58% mm-hmm. from its high. And then you see those headlines then, and they were projecting that the recession could run for four years, mm-hmm. one of the headlines. And, and try to imagine yourself as an investor and you've lost that more than, again, more than you thought, more than you can afford to. And then you're seeing the headlines that, it's going to get a lot worse mm-hmm. that we have just started that, that we've yeah. we've just entered a recession even though they backdated the start to a year earlier um and and that's when it's tough to hold the course on a buy and hold right it's easy to hold it through the first half yeah. of a bear market or even the first two thirds it's when you get in that last third of a bear market and then all the headlines come out and you're looking at a portfolio of losses and you're saying, this isn't much of a decision and I, I really don't like any of my alternatives. Yeah. So managing risk, managing risk is becomes more important as you age. Right. And, and it's not just because of your age, it's because of the size of your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it never ceases to amaze me how that's that sentiment plays out uh, in real time as you're going through. You always think of the sentiment cycle, but when you actually live through it, and you know, I'm thinking of that 2009 bottom where people swore off, "I'll never buy another stock as yeah. long as I live." Yeah. 2012 in real estate, I'll never own a home ever again as long as I live. I'll rent for the rest of my life. Oh yeah, that's the mm-hmm. sentiment, and, and and we're seeing the, the opposite of it today. Where preservation of capital, nobody, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, what, what's, there, what's there to preserve? <laughs> right. Where can I make the most right. money? Yeah, I want to. Yeah. Do I want to be in the Do I want to be in the stock market? Do I want to be in cryptocurrencies, or do I want to be in in real estate? Yeah. And it's like, wow! I, it's like I'm in this game, and and everything is a great opportunity. Yeah. Uh, they don't see the risk. Never consider the downside. No. So I, I want to come to one indicator in particular. You said a, a moment ago that there is no holy grail, but maybe the next closest thing. For for you, apparently, would be your negative leadership composite. It, play, it seems to play a very important role in your overall asset allocation model. Can you break this indicator down for me and, and just discuss why it's one of the most important ones you follow? Yeah. Yeah. We've, when you look back historically, um, we've looked at a lot of tools 
And uh, a lot of the tools on, on and off Wall Street are based on sentiment. Uh, in fact, the, the, on the old Wall Street Week program with Lou Rukeyser, the elves, you know, they're elves, which when Bob Newrock ran it were not people, they were technical indicators. And, yeah. uh, when those, when those 10 technical indicators reached a, a positive five, it would be, you know, a, a great buy signal or a negative five would be a sell signal yeah. and and sentiment majority were sentiment indicators and they felt fa- failed miserably yeah. at the 87 crash okay uh, that's a whole story in of, of itself but we've done a lot of study on sentiment indicators they don't work very well uh, because they never peak at the same level twice and when they do peak they start moving in the opposite direction and telling you just the opposite of what you should be doing mm. uh, the tools that we have found that work you know, market breadth. Uh, there's various ways of measuring breadth or participation and divergences. Uh, but the one you asked about was leadership, negative leadership composite. We uh, have data going all the way back to when the exchange started releasing it, uh, high-low data on the New York Amex, you know, and, and NASDAQ back to those shorter-term periods. Uh, but the, the New York went back into, into the, the late 60s or, or mid-60s, and we actually obtained uh, additional data going back much further from uh, an individual who had gone into into the New York the the Wall Street Journal and handwritten the data out of it going all the way mm. going back much further. Wow. And so we we looked at highs and lows. And uh we didn't find much useful data in tracking or or looking at upside leadership, positive leadership. Um because the the market will hit the the market hits the most number of new twelve year twelve month highs coming out of a bear market at the bottom. Um, we looked at downside leadership and we found a strong correlation, you know, with market tops. When you see you know breadth and and depth of the new lows increasing, as the market is at new highs, you know, new twelve month or longer highs. When you see downside leadership increasing, it means two things. It means, number one, investors are becoming more selective. They're chasing the same number of fewer stocks. And number two, they're starting to sell stocks because they are going down. And why is that important? Well, let's talk about it psychologically. If you buy two stocks, if you're a new investor, young investor, you buy two stocks, both at $20 a share. One goes up to 25, one goes down to 15. Which one are you going to sell? Well, I'm going to sell the wood. You know, you're told I have to sell one. Okay. I'll sell the window into 25 because that made a profit and right. I'll reinvest that. I'll hold the one that went down to 15 right. until, until it gets back to even. Right. That is human psychology. Right. And, and uh, seasoned investors know, okay, you should have done the opposite. Right. But, uh, the decision to sell stocks when they are hitting new lows is one that is driven by fear. Yeah. You know, and when you see downside leadership, what we call negative leadership, when you see that building up on a continuous basis and the market's hitting new highs, we call it distribution. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're selling stocks that are hitting new lows. I want to get rid of them out of, you know, you're, you're being forced to out of fear. It, it shows distribution. So we look for that downside leadership 
as an, an indication of a high risk market or potential market tops. And, and it worked, it's worked very, very well, uh, at market tops. Yeah. It, at times it, it'll give intermediate signals in, in long-term bull markets prior to a correction and stuff, but it still is a tool to help us just gauge our overall allocation as well as our sector, you know, weighting to try to reduce risk on our portfolio when we're seeing that negative leadership develop. Conversely, I, one of the, one of the more valuable of messages from that negative leadership is when it completely disappears. Yeah. If downside leadership completely disappears for an extended period, you have launched, you're launching a new bull market. We went through the pandemic last year. This is a perfect example. We went through the pandemic last year. Market peaked in February bottom. I think it was March 19th. By the time the market peaked in February, we were already defensive. We're not as defensive as we or anyone else would want to be, Mm -hmm. but we were building up substantial cash in our investing model portfolio and over on the money management side, separate company, uh, SEC regulated. Uh, we were, you know, SFM was building up defensive cash reserves for our clients prior to the market peak in February. We went through that March bottom and that was the fastest bear market in, um, in Wall Street history. Yeah. We went down to a 20% decline faster than any time. Mm. At the same time, of course, the, the NBR just came out and said it was the shortest recession right. in history. And, you know, by the way, you know, the, the NBR just came back out and declared the end of the recession, you know, to April of last year, over a year ago. Right. Now, right. now, does this start bringing back memories of yeah. the late 90s right. and, and 1973? That's the way it works. Yeah. You know, you, you have to realize well, you funny. can't, I, you so can't many, go by head. Yeah. So many people, you know, tell me if you, if you start talking to them about, bad breath, but I'm saying, okay, well, if the economy goes into recession, then I'll get, you know, conservative exactly. in my portfolio. By, go, the time okay. you, by the time you, by the time you see a headline, the economy's going into recession, it's the majority, too- the majority of losses are going to have already been encountered in the bear market. Anyway, back to, back to coming out of the pandemic last year, um, by, uh, as early as April, May, we saw, saw a complete drying up in our negative leadership composite. And it, built what we call a, a bullish selling vacuum. In other words, there was a total absence of downside leadership in the market. And it said, you know, okay, it was scary emotionally. Mm-hmm. It was scary headlines. It was scary pandemic. You know, no one knew when we would ha- have a vaccine or even if we would have a vaccine. But we we're seeing such strong bullish signals that we were incrementally taking our allocation back upward. Yeah. And we saw one very strong bullish selling vacuum. And then we saw another one appear in the fall again. And both of those we used as opportunities to incrementally increase our allocation, not back up to, you know, extremely high levels. Uh, in, in this kind of a market, I don't feel comfortable above an 80, 82% invested position. Mm-hmm. I just, that <clears throat> cash reserve allows me to sleep at night on the SFM side, it allows clients to sleep at night. Uh, uh, in contrast, when we came out of the, the March 2009 bottom, which was truly one of the most oversold extremes in Wall Street history, uh, by July of 2009, we were over 95% invested. Mm-hmm. And that was within the first three or four months of, of that bull market. Um, you you gauge your investment allocation 
and you gauge your sector weighting, which sectors do I want to be invested in based on risk. Mm-hmm. When you're in a high-risk market like we are today, um, we're staring away from the highest-risk sectors. If this market keeps going up, um, we're going to underperform. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's not going to – I'm, I'm not going to apologize to our subscribers for it. And Investec, SFM is not going to apologize to, to their clients uh, because that's what we do. We are mm-hmm. managing risk. And this is a high-risk market. Valuations are very high. Um, we're not playing in any of the highest-risk stocks. Um, on the um, we do have some that are doing very, very, very well. Yeah. You know, on the money management side, you know, on the SFM side, we hold Microsoft. Yeah. You know, and we we keep selling <laughs> incrementally. It keeps because it's gone up so much. We've had a for, it's a tin bagger yeah. uh, almost from when we bought it back in the start of the bull market. We keep trying to sell it down a little bit right. because you know it just keeps going up. But uh, we know that it's going to be along with the the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. They're going to be some of the bigger losers in in uh, a bear market if we go into a bear market because, well, they, two reasons. One, uh, in most cases, their valuations are very high. Uh, their expectations from investors are very, very high. Mm-hmm. And and secondly, there's another phenomenon that we're seeing today that we saw in the late 90s is what I would call a, a momentum mania. Everyone's piling into the same big cap momentum stocks. We invented our gorilla index. <laughs> that that it's fewer it's it's fewer than a dozen stocks in the S P and yet it's made uh, made more than a third of the return in the S P you know in in recent years. Everyone's piling into those same dozen stocks. Yeah. And and we did the same thing. We invented a gorilla index back in the late nineties to track those momentum stocks because we, we knew at that time that when that reversed, when that momentum, that gorilla index reversed in the late nineties, it would give us a pretty compelling reason to believe that the top was in place and we were in what might be a protracted bear market. Bear markets on average last about nine to 12 months. Uh, some of the bigger bear markets, when you start at higher levels, they, they often last up to 18 months. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's, you know, on, the positive is the pain doesn't last as long as, as good bull markets does do. The, that's the good news. Yeah. The, the bad news is that, that whether it's nine months or whether it's 18 months, you know, the downside losses can be very substantial. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the the custom indexes that you use. That was the kind of the next indicator that I wanted to ask you about. Um, Stan Druckenmiller has said that the inside of the stock market is the best economist he's ever seen. He goes, <laughs> not not what the broad econ- stock market is doing, but what certain sectors within the market are doing. And so you isolate certain sectors, certain stocks to to give you to to send messages for for what's going on potentially with the the broader market. Uh, can you talk about some of these custom indexes? Yeah. You mentioned the Gorilla Index. Yeah. But you have the others. Gorilla Index, it, they're basically momentum stocks. They're the mm-hmm. big cap momentum stocks. Uh, and it's still, it's still up there near new highs. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that reverses, in, in, you go back to the tech bubble and we had uh, a similar, um, 
Gorilla Index. Some of the stocks are the same stocks that we've identified today that are the momentum stocks. But we knew that when that peaked and when it reversed and we saw it break all support levels, which it did by the third quarter of 2000, within six months after the after the peak in that market, we knew we were heading into a protracted bear market. Mm-hmm. And and we were very defensive at the time. Uh, by the middle of the next year, we were already bottom fishing in, in companies mm-hmm. that fall into very attractive levels. Um, we're watching those momentum stocks today, the gorilla stocks, because we know that when those break down, uh, it's basically going to be a strong signal the top's in place. Now, how do you measure the sentiment? How do you measure the speculation? How do we know when the, when speculation's going to peak? Um, you know, you can look at something like Bitcoin, went up to 60,000, then went mm. down to 30,000, yeah. uh, looked like it was going to break down, and all of a sudden it's rebounded. Um, you know, it, it's a good psychological index, but the cryptocurrencies are, are a unique factor in and of themselves. Uh, it's not, we can talk about that separately if you want, but uh, another index that we developed is our Canary Index. Now, that's an abbreviated name. Uh, the actual name is Canary in the Coal Mine Index. Right. We came up with this nov- novel concept because in the you know you go over a hundred years ago, miners would carry canaries down in the, the in the coal mine because they were very susceptible to methane gas. And if the can- if the canary keeled over, miners knew get out of there. Um, so we invented a canary in the coal mine index. And, and what we did with this index, we just did this you know, over the last, you know, a couple months ago. And we basically put in there what we considered the public favorites in, in speculative new issue stocks. You know, some of them only been out six months, some have been out two years or longer. But this is measuring the heart of the speculation in the market. And the reason we did that is because there was a phenomenon back in the tech bubble uh, in the late 90s that we saw. And, and it also happened back in, in 1929 that, that when, um, when the market peaked uh, in, in take this last one, the tech bubble, when the market peaked in, in March uh, and started falling, those speculative stocks, the ones that were the most speculative, fell like rocks out of the starting gate you know um and and indeed the nasdaq was was well into a bear market over down over 20 percent within a a couple months after that but we wanted an index today that marries them that measures the heart of the speculative frenzy thus the canary in the coal mine index or what we call canary index is measuring those speculative stocks it peaked and it did not hit a new high on the recent highs in the market and if it breaks down it's rallying right now but if it, if it breaks down if we we're looking at that in the third quarter of this year and we're seeing it break down like we saw the speculative stocks break down you know at, after the peak in the tech bubble it'll give us a pretty good indication that we should be moving more and more to a defensive stance risk management is not market timing it is very gradual. It is boringly uh, disciplined. Mm-hmm. And it just means that, you know, as you start seeing more true warning flags, not headlines, yeah. uh, when you see uh, that negative leadership composite showing distribution, as you talked about, mm-hmm. if we start seeing an increasing broadening of new lows in, in the market, if we see increasing divergences, 
Uh, and if we see a breakdown in that canary index, by the time we get into third quarter of this year, you know, we will be, if, you know, significantly more cash reserve than we have today. We'll, we'll also be out of some of the more cyclical stocks. Uh, in the last, uh, in the, over the last month, we have just incrementally stepped down several percentage points a couple times just to, um, pull some of the profits off the table. Mm-hmm. We, uh, you know, we're seeing anecdotal warning signs. Yeah. You know, and by that, I mean single days that you go scratch your head and you go, that does not make me feel good. Right. And and it's not a matter of emotions; it's a matter of technical. Yeah. And and uh, this is going to sound a little bit technical to your listeners, but it's pretty easy to understand. You know, if you look at the you know how many stocks in the S and P five hundred are above their fifty day moving average, that's very positive when there's a large number. When you have fewer stocks above their fifty day moving average, that means a lot of stocks aren't participating. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're below their moving average. You know. We recently hit new highs in the market with the fewest number, fewest percentage of S&P stocks above their 50-day moving average than we've seen since 1999. Mm-hmm. That was the last year of the tech bubble. Yeah. yeah. Now, that, now, that was only over a couple of days that we saw that. Does it mean we're going to go out and sell everything? No. But it does tell me, you know, have, have a foot in the door, have an eye on the exit, and watch for more warning flags because if more appear, we're, it's, we need to move to even a more defensive cash position than we are right now. Yeah. I, I feel like you're reading my mind here a little bit. You kind of, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to ask you about these divergences. I'm glad you brought that up because you have three keys to surviving a bubble. Number one is be defensive early. Number two is avoid the intoxicating psychology. Don't get drawn into that. Mm-hmm. And number three is watch for confirming evidence that the bubble has popped. And you mentioned you watch the negative leader, leadership composite. Mm-hmm. You're watching this canary in the coal mine index. And then you you started talking a little bit about these divergences too. One was the, the percent of stocks over the 50-day moving average. But I think you're also talking about intermarket or yeah, across in, different intermarket. indexes. Well, breadth is one of those tools that historically has worked well. And, you know, one of the oldest breadth tools was looking at the number of advancing stocks versus declining stocks on a daily basis and taking that net from that and keeping a long-term running average of the advanced decline and and then looking for a divergence. In other words, let's suppose the market is hitting new highs and that advanced decline line is going down. Mm-hmm. What's it mean? Well, it means the generals are leading but the troops are in retreat. In other words, mm-hmm. you have few stocks that are driving the market yeah. indexes to new high, while the majority of stocks are not driving that new high. They're actually going opposite. And and it was a tool that was very valuable, extremely valuable in 1998-99 in the final years of the tech bubble because we, we had developed a breadth uh, index based measuring advanced decline. We had the breadth data going all the way back to the 1920s. And we said, wow, that, that last year, um, you know, the entire gain in the S&P 500 index, you know, came from only 20% of the stocks. Yeah. And we said, okay, this is, this is, has to be a classic warning flag. We ran the breadth analysis all the way back and we were seeing the greatest divergence in market breadth since 1929 leading up to the crash. 
And it's not, it, we didn't come out and forecast a crash. I'm not a doom and gloomer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think generally, you know, the U.S. economy is going to be better off 10 years from now, better off five years from now. But I do know that bear markets are a natural and healthy part of, you know, the investing and economic cycle. Um, and uh, when you look at today, uh, one of the difficulties in looking at breadth you know, particularly when you look at advanced declines is when uh, the exchange, and again, this gets a little technical, so I'll make it really simple. When the exchange went, went to decimalization, in other words, stocks trade on the penny instead of an eighth of a point, mm-hmm. you know, you know, or a quarter of a point like they did uh, back in the 90s, 80s, 70s, and so on. Uh, they did that just after uh, 2000. When the exchange went to decimalization, we saw a change in breadth characteristics that we're still running analysis on, trying to figure out, okay, how can we develop a, a good breadth tool that uh, that is re- going to be reliable in identifying whether this is a top we're in? And um, we're planning on introducing a new breadth indicator, but we, we want to do some more work on it. What you can look at today are divergences, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's another classic characteristic. Um, Dow Jones utility average tends to be very interest rate economically sensitive. Uh, the, the, it is one of the best indicators, uh, that, that, uh, you're seeing divergence when blue chips hit new highs, the utilities do not. Uh, the transports, think of the transports as also an economically sensitive index. Um, you know, and so if the blue chips, the Dow, S&P, um, or even the NASDAQ, the technology index, is hitting new highs and utilities are not and transports are not. And ironically, the Russell 2000 is quite a ways, still a ways below its its all-time high. When, when blue chips are hitting their highs and NASDAQ's hitting new highs and you're seeing these other indexes not hitting the, their highs, it's just, it's one of those things that makes you go, as Grant Williams would say, hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a good indication. A healthy bull market has the entire market moving in tandem. Right. All indexes are moving up together when, you know, you know, not necessarily all hitting new highs on the same day, but the growing number of divergences that you see in other indexes or internally in breadth or, and that's why we developed our canary index and our gorilla index, the, the speculative index for the canary index and the big cap momentums in, in the, the gorilla index. That's all measuring participation. It's measuring, it's measuring divergence. And, um, you know, the more of those divergences that, that are present and the bigger they become. You know, historically, divergences don't just develop, they continue to worsen. Mm-hmm. And if they continue to worsen over the balance of this year, it might be an indication that this market is in a topping process. Uh, what's unique about today's market is, and you know, particularly with respect to past market tops, is you have, you know, basically the Federal Reserve still adding, you know, 180 proof to the punch bowl. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes a unique environment where in spite of the extreme valuations, in spite of, you know, some of these anecdotal technical warning flags that we're seeing, 
the the monitor, monetary is still very very supportive of the market. That doesn't guarantee that you know we're not going to have a bear market, right. but it it means that this is perhaps um, the most interest rate sensitive market in our lifetime. Right, and that that's something that investors should recognize. Uh, you, we're not going to have to see the Federal Reserve raise interest rates two, three, or four percent before it wreaks havoc on on Wall Street. You know, it might take only as much as the Federal Reserve starting to, you know, announce that they're going to stop buying bonds and, mm-hmm. and we could have, you know, another, another panic attack, more of the, uh, the kind that we saw, you know, in the midpoint of this long economic recovery that we, that we saw from 2009 up until the pandemic. Right. And so let's, let's imagine, uh, that your, Canary index breaks down, negative leadership starts showing distribution to an extent where you would you know, feel comfortable taking down risk even further. What would that look like in terms of an equity allocation? Well, in our most defensive uh, mode today, we will increase cash to, you know, 45, 50% of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, right now we're, we were, um, uh, about 82, 83% invested. We've cut that back to now we're 77, 78% in the last few weeks. So that's about 23% cash. Um, that's still fairly heavily or fair, what well, I would say fairly invested mm-hmm. in terms of the, the market potential right now, considering what we're seeing in terms of what, what might be future developing or current developing warning flags. Uh, if those increase, uh, the key is to step out of the most speculative stocks, the biggest mo- cap momentum stocks, because they fall the farthest. The ones that are most overvalued. <laughs> Bear markets are the great normalizer. They mm-hmm. basically bring down the highest valuation stocks the hardest. Yeah. And the key is to not be in those. Uh, still retain some of the good fundamental stocks that have good uh, good fundamentals and, and are, aren't selling too far beyond what their 10-year average uh, you know, valuations are in terms of price to cash flow or, or book value and, and different metrics that, that our portfolio team uses. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm focused a lot on the research side, mm-hmm. you know, on the Investec side, over on the money management side, on the SFM side, our portfolio team, they all have CFAs. Yeah. You know, I don't. <laughs> you know, I am not, you know, well, I, yes, we did very, very well in recommending stocks back in, in Vestec and, you know, before we, we switched to ETFs in the Investec portfolio, uh, you know, about 20, about 15, 18 years ago, yeah. simply because we did not want to create a conflict with our money managed accounts. Uh-huh. Our, our portfolio team over on the SFM side manages in individual equities, mm. which I, I tend to favor for individual investors if they have the time and the well, wherewithal to do their own vetting of those individual securities. Mm-hmm. It's it's more like using a rifle approach than using a shotgun approach right. when you buy an ETF, because when you buy an ETF, you get the bad components or mm-hmm. overvalued components of that you know, that exchange traded fund along with the ones that might be the most attractive. Right. But I think it's an important point to make that not only through your overall allocation are you using, you know, risk management or becoming more defensive potentially, but you're also 
with that allocation, you're becoming more defensive by favoring defensive sectors. Yeah. How, what, what drives the, that, uh, the, the sector allocations? Well, the sector allocations, you know, we tend to look at where we are, um, not just in terms of the economic cycle. This is a mature economic cycle. Now you might say, well, wait, we just came out of recession last year, that two month recession. The pandemic was, what I would call a warning shot across the bow of a, a 10-year bull market. Yeah. It was a panic plunge and then this panic buying as, you know, both the Federal Reserve and, and Washington brought punch, <laughs> punch bowls to the party and spiked them. Yeah. Um, but what you're looking at today is a mature economy and we're seeing that in the inflation pressures. So we want to look for sectors that are not going to be impacted if interest rates start to creep upward, you know, mm -hmm. with or without the Fed's blessing. The Fed can control short-term rates. They can't necessarily control long-term rates. And if we were to see 10-year Treasury yields start to climb back up toward 2% or above, it's going to stay, start taking a, a big toll on interest-sensitive stocks. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're tending to avoid those that are going to be impacted by high inflation, We've all of our analysis we put in recent issues tells us that inflation is a lot stickier than mm -hmm. the, what the Fed is telling us right now. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the Fed, one of the Fed, Federal Reserve regional banks has its own stickiness index that is telling us that inflation is stickier than what, what, uh, what Jerome Powell is telling us, the, yeah. the chairman of the Fed. Uh, we are uh, leaning toward those sectors that tend to benefit from mature bull markets. The energy sector is one that we recently incrementally increased position in because I, I think as the, the world emerges from pandemic, assuming that Delta variant doesn't take all of us backward, I, I don't think that'll be the case, but we're going to see a continuing demand for energy. Um, and, and so we are maintaining a, a decent allocation there. We are trying to avoid areas in the financials that mm -hmm. are going to be the most sensitive. Mm -hmm. uh, historically, if you it's some of the, some of the other sector analysis we've done has gone back and looked at markets, bull markets, which sectors do the best coming out of the market bottom, mm -hmm. which ones do the best in the mid stage of a bull market and which ones do the best or hold up better in a mature bull market. Ironically, energy is the one that has the best batting average and the best gains and mm -hmm. the, the strongest average gain, but also gains more frequently than, than others in that mature bull market. And one of the weaker sectors in that mature bull market, uh, is the financial sector. You know, it certainly was at the last market top in 2000, you know, you know, from the, from the, housing bubble peak in 2005 until the uh, stock market peaked in in the the third quarter fourth quarter actually October of 2007 um you know financial stocks did miserably mm -hmm. and and we did not have any financials in our portfolio the last 18 months of that bull market there are some financials we have in in our portfolios today but it's a sector that you don't want to be overweighted in mm -hmm. Uh, I also would tend to be very careful about the technology sector. Uh, I know on the Investec side, uh, it's easier to do that with individual stocks. Mm -hmm. But on the Investec side, 
uh, we we changed our allocation in technology from um, basically you know an overall technology uh, ETF, which is capitalization weighted, which means you have the biggest cap, the gorilla stocks in that ETF. Mm-hmm. We we changed to an, an unweighted ETF, mm-hmm. uh, and by doing that we reduced the risk in those big cap gorilla stocks. So if you go out and, and just search on unweighted technology ETF, you'll mm-hmm. find a lower risk technology, you know, ETF to invest in today than than perhaps the S&P, you know, yeah. e, you know technology yeah. and stuff. Well, yeah, I think it's a, a terrific point because there's a lot of ways to practice risk management and it's not just mm-hmm. your overall allocation, it's with these sectors and things. Um You've allowed me to take up uh, a ton of your time already. I want to change gears before yes. I let you go. Uh, we mentioned a little bit uh, about whitefish here. and I'm just curious to know, do you have any hobbies or passions outside of the markets that maybe you feel like make you a better investor? Yeah, we've, we've have a hobby. We had a hobby. You know, as I'm, I won't admit my age. You can go out and find my age on the <laughs> internet, but, uh, you know, both, uh, Lisa, who, who has worked in the company for 33 years and I hired her into accounting and ended up marrying her shortly after hiring her. <laughs> and, and we basically have, have co-built the company together a lot as we brought more and more of our team on board. We had, we had a hobby that made a lot of, our subscribers nervous. Mm. We, uh, at the, at the time I was a whitewater kayaker and she uh-huh. took it up and we very, very proficient. We basically traveled the world. You know, we would take a three week vacation. We went off and we, we kayaked the Biobio river in, in Chile before wow. they dammed it. Yeah. We went over and did the same in Nepal. We were kayaking class four and class five whitewater <laughs> and, yeah. and we never told our, our, Subscribers on the money management side, we never told our SFM clients in advance we were taking one of these trips um, because you know the whitewater kayaking class four or five water is not the safest thing to do. But okay. as long as you follow all practical safety principles, you know uh, it it was very safe for us. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, we did that for up until about five years ago. We were doing that. All over. We did the Grand Canyon. We always went down to the main and middle fork of the Salmon River in Idaho. Uh, we love, we ran waterfalls in, in New Zealand. Wow. Um, it was exciting. Yeah. But you did it safely. Right. And by that, I mean you knew what risks were acceptable and what weren't. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa was talking about we were coming out of Schaefer Meadows uh, here in yeah, just outside Glacier Park. And we were doing self-support, just the two of us. And we came to a rapid called Spruce Park. It's well known for being a dangerous rapid and pulled out on the bank. I said, you know, well, if you pick your run. And she said, I, I don't see it. I said, good, because we're walking this one. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it's that sort of thing that, that has instilled a discipline in risk management. Right. You know, there are just some times you come to a rapid that it's better to pull out and walk it. Right. And, and the true is the same is true on Wall Street. I don't think, I don't think you have to go to an extreme 100% cash position. Yeah. We've done that twice in Investec. We did it in 1987 before the crash and, 
we ended up getting a lot of very, very fav favorable publicity. That's what put Investec on the map was when Mark Holbert of the Holbert Financial Digest identified fewer than a handful of advisors who had gone to extreme cash. And we went to 100% cash prior to Black Monday. And the last second one was in the tech bubble of the late 90s. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason we did it then is because I simply did not know how to play in that dangerous environment, right. investing-wise. Uh, today, I think with the managed risk management tools that we have, having you know much, much better stock selection, having a sector weighting that is very methodical, uh, I, I think the extreme cash would be 45 maybe 50% cash. But um, I think anything you do in life has risk. Mm -hmm. You go out on the highway, uh, it has risk. If you pass on a double line, you're taking what would be called unacceptable risk. Yeah. We do this in everything we do in our life. Right. The whitewater kayaking was just a, a background that, you know, I, I didn't really, you know, make the parallel with my investment philosophy until... You know, we've been doing it for 20 years. I go, wow, it really has taught me a lot in how you manage, measure risk and decide what's acceptable and what's not. Yeah, well, I can't think of a better metaphor for somebody who's spent his career trying to understand how to navigate bear markets <laughs> safely through full cycle investing uh, than, you know, whitewater kayaking. It's a perfect yeah. metaphor. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm a huge fan of your work. I recommend everybody go check out Investec. I've been reading it for a, a long time, and it's it's uh, it's a fun read uh, in addition to being very valuable to to the work I do. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm grateful to you. It's been pure pleasure. Thank you very much. I, I'm glad to pull out some of those old memory cells. Henry, I'm going, wow, I remember all those days in the basement of the libraries. I remember doing all the research and and scratching my head. And th this market today is one of those head scratchers. We're in a very unique environment. And uh, it'll be much more clear when we look back three years from now, you know, what, what we're looking at today. Well, it was a pleasure to listen to those stories. And, and because <laughs> I do think they, they add a, a, an amount of color to what we're going through today that, that I haven't found anywhere else. So thanks. Great. Thank you. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss. <laughs>